Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> James chapter 1. Why don't you stand? We're going to get right into it. Perseverance and resistance. A couple words that are probably very prominent in our vocabulary these days. So James chapter 1 this morning. Verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How do you do with that one? <laughs> Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect or complete work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Let's pray. Lord, please, the things I prepared, unless you take by your Holy Spirit and anoint them and bless them to our hearts and minds, they're just words. But Lord, we know that this is your word. We believe, Lord, that your word is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus, you said it's not just hearing, but then doing. When we built, in, in doing the things you've told us, then our lives are being built on the rock. And James, even, even in this series we're going through, the faith and works, and that faith works, and that faith is work. Faith is faith that works. <laughs> and Lord, we do not want to be lacking in any area of our faith. But we know, Lord, that that is the work that you must do through your word by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So we're open to your word today, Lord. I pray the things I prepared, you break them fresh, feed us. Holy Spirit, impart to us, I pray, truth that we hear and not only hear it, but we do it. Please help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So there are four men in the, in the New Testament named James. Three of them are mentioned in Acts chapter 113, where the early church was upstairs waiting for the Holy Spirit. Three of them. This James is the Lord's half-brother. So he was by natural offspring of Mary and Joseph, born after Jesus' birth. Jesus was born a virgin. So it appears that James did not believe in Jesus as he's growing up. You can imagine what went on in the house. <laughs> he was also became one of the pillars of the early church. He also presided over the council in Jerusalem, which is one fact that sort of points to James, this James who wrote the book, being uh, a leader in the early church. His, his other brother was Jude, the, the uh, book that we're, I, I hope you're, you're endeavoring to memorize. 25 verses, we're about verse 17 right now in our memorizing that. So, but James also suffered a violent martyr's death about 70 A.D., somewhere before the, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed. So this, this, uh, this man became quite a man as far as uh, his life being given over to God. He was raised again with, and can you imagine, if, you were, if I was writing a letter and I was Jesus' half-brother, I'd probably write something like, Kevin, a half-brother of Jesus, born to the same mother and lived in the same house. As Jesus. <laughs> but he says, James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude said the same thing. He understood, he came to know who Jesus really is. Do you know who Jesus really is? That's the, that's the key to this whole, the whole of the Bible is a bondservant of Jesus Christ. My life given over to him. Now, the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, you may have heard something of these lost tribes. That's not true. They've never been lost. They were scattered, but not lost. And God is regathering them today. In fact, I just saw something. There's more 
There's so many Jews returning to Israel now, the government doesn't know if they can handle them. But that's all in fulfillment of the prophecies of God about his people. He was going to regather them in the last days. Are we in the last days or not? Look at what's going on. So God's regathering his people. They were never lost to God. You look at Revelation chapter 7, and they're numbered. Well, the 12,000 tribe of, of uh, 12,000 of Judah, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Naphtali, the tribe of Zebulun. And he goes on. The 12 tribes, there they are in Revelation. Now, I'm going to trust God's word before I'm going to trust somebody telling me that they were lost. They've never been lost. God has a plan for them. He's working through his people, Israel, to bring the, he worked to bring the Savior to the world. And the Savior is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And I better stick to my notes or I'm going to get off here. Okay. Now, the Assyrians took them, scattered them. The Babylonians scattered them. 65 B.C., they were scattered, the third scattering. In 70 A.D., when the, when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, God scattered them again, and now he's regathering them. Could you say amen to that? Amen. We are of the root, we, we are coming out of the root of, the, of Judaism. Our Savior is Jewish. Our heritage is Jewish spiritually. So, now James wastes no time. I love this. He wastes no time. He just says, let's get right into it. So as we look at the, at the book of James, as we're going through this, the pastors are going to be teaching that, six weeks. James can seem to be abrupt. He seems to be disjointed sometimes as he changes ideas and thoughts. But very clearly, the overriding theme is that of faith. We find it 16 times in the book of James. Most of that in James chapter 2 where he's talking about works and faith. Faith that is evident. Faith that works, or faith works. Does your faith work? You see, it's the, most, it's the most important part of our relationship with God, that by faith we've been justified. We walk by faith, not by sight. And all through the scriptures, and James particularly here, is going to be nailing us on, is our faith practical? Is our faith evident? Is our faith real? Does our faith work? And in that, there's a personal substance to the way that we live. That's our faith. So the, that's the question that we're going to be looking at as we go through this. If I can, let me raise this up here. Yeah, okay. James seeks to instruct us how to solve problems by faith. Faith is a problem-solving characteristic of who we are as Christians. We look at the world we live in, we need God's help. Would you say amen to that? We need God's way. We need God's truth. We need, bottom line, we need God's power and we need God's peace and we need God's presence. So 16 times, faith. Now, an argument that is frequently raised in the book of James is that he's contradicting Paul. So when Paul talks about Abraham, Paul says that Abraham was justified by faith apart from works. James says that Abraham was justified by works. Look at it, chapter 2, verse 21. James 2, 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see, now notice this, do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made complete? Perfect. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God as accounted for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. 
He walked with God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith, keyword, only. So rather than being contradicting, they are companions. They are complementary to each other. Look at Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? If for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something of which to boast. But here's the key, not before God. So Paul in the book of Romans is laying a foundation for the gospel. And he's talking about Abraham, our father, that he believed God, was accounted for righteousness before he did any circumcision or any kind of work. He was justified by believing God's promises. And I say, amen. If we're trying to build our lives on anything other than God's promises to us, we are going to find ourselves failing in our faith. So the key to our understanding is Paul is writing about Abraham's faith in his justification before God. James is seeking, speaking of the faith in his justification before men. These are complementary. In other words, if I say that I believe in God, it should completely impact how I live my life. I can't be living, I can't be, I'm a Christian living like the devil. I can't be saying I'm a Christian and continuing in a lifestyle of sin. That's what God changes through the power of the Holy Spirit becoming alive again. So overriding theme is that of practical faith that is evident to others. Faith that is real, practical, evident, substance to it in the way that I live. And let me say this to you. Our faith will challenge our flesh all the way along. Am I going to humble myself and do what God's called me to do? Or am I going to be yielding myself and leaning toward my fleshly desires, which are self-centered and sinful? So there are two things I want to look at in this chapter. Faith perseveres in trials and faith resists temptations. That's how I've outlined it. Faith perseveres in trials. He said, my brethren. Now, here's a beautiful thing about James. He's direct, but he's not direct at the expense of caring for people. We find in, in, in the book of James 15 times, brethren or beloved brethren or brethren uh, beloved. Every chapter, he writes that. Those, that is a powerful combination. Someone who's willing to speak the truth in love. Someone who's going to challenge our faith practically by caring for us personally. Powerful combo. Now, first thing, faith counts trials. Counting it all joy when trials come along. Is this not the exact opposite of what we're usually counting? We live counting on them not coming. Rare is the person who is counting it all joy when trials come. Common is the person, that's why I want to go through the book of James again, because I need this. Common is the person who is counting, anything, counting them anything but joy. You see, happiness depends on circumstances. Joy depends on relationship. Look at verse uh, 11 of chapter 5 in James. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. 
You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. But he says there, indeed, we count them blessed. And usually that's what we're doing. We're counting them blessed, but certainly not me. They're going through trial. Oh, bless you. But when it comes to me, that's the last thing I'm usually counting. We read of the disciples. It's interesting as you go through and just look at this whole word of count in the scriptures. We read of the disciples in the early church. They're being persecuted. And this is what it says in Acts chapter 5. These are not up there. So they departed from the presence of the council after being persecuted, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the shame for his name. Listen to Paul the Apostle's accounting. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I may run my race with joy completed. I'm not usually counting that way. Again, Philippians, what things were gained to me, these I've counted lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. Lost for Christ. Yes, indeed, I count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered all things, the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. (laughs) I'm saying, Lord, I need your help. I want to have those things. And God has ways of loosening our grip that we might know and count it all joy. Philippians again, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward. He said, I've not yet attained, and that's always the the desire of our faith is to be knowing the sufferings and knowing the glory and knowing the power of God. That comes through trials. It comes through God loosening our hands on the things that we want to cling to. So James is saying simply this. We should be counting on every trial to bring about a good thing, a perfect work. We do not count trials as joy number one. Reminds you of Dr. Seuss. Joy number two, joy number three. Because in and of themselves, they aren't very fun. They're not very joyful, and they're called trials for a reason. But we can count on a perfect, listen, we can count on a perfect, complete work of God through them. That's what James is saying. What are you trialing today? We can count it all joy because we can count on God. So, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So we should, faith expects trials. When you. What is a trial? A trial is something through which a verdict is reached about something or someone. A trial is something through which truth is hopefully ascertained and judgment made. A trial is a testing by which the nature, character, or fortitude of something is determined. So when something's put on the market, it's first tested to see if that product will hold up, to see if it's safe. So faith not only expects trials to come, but it expects trials to come unexpectedly. You fall into Now, wouldn't it be nice if we could just plan our trials? 
I put about an hour on my Outlook calendar. Or maybe a day. <laughs> I'm going to end it today. Okay, is that done? Faith expects not only trials to come unexpectedly, but for trials to come in many ways. They come in provision, relationships, direction, these testings, these verdicts. They come in the physical realm, the emotional realm, and the intellectual realm. They test our commitment. They test our contentment, and they test our conscience. So faith expects trials to come, to come unexpectedly, and to come in many ways. Secondly, faith knows trials. In other words, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you better know you're going to know trials. Faith knows that trials prove. Knowing the test of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work. They may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I like those last words. Lacking nothing. In other words, a complete work of God that's going to eliminate the things by which you are lacking. They prove our faith. The one thing that needs to be proved above all others is our faith. What's the substance of it? It's like the testing of products to prove them safe and reliable. It's like the testing of soldiers to prove them competent in conflict. Our son Titus, we're so proud of him. He just graduated from Navy boot camp. We, didn't, we couldn't talk to him for 10 weeks. We talked an hour and a half on, face, on FaceTime or whatever it was. But he's been proven. He, he did well. You know how proud that makes me? Our Heavenly Father wants to do the same for us. You as a soldier must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And there's that testing and proving because we don't want to get out in a battle. God's not going to put us in some place where we're going to be destroyed. He's going to prepare us through what? Trials. Testings. Or the testing of students. Dusty. <laughs> So that when they leave the classroom, they know what they're talking about. Now, that doesn't, that's not the complete work, the, the intellectual part of that, but it's an important part. We read our Bibles. The Bible is what we need to be giving ourselves of truth, but then the testing happens in life. That's why Jesus said, you know, you can hear, James also, you can hear these things, but if you don't do something with them, it's not going to do anything as far as a rock on which you can build your life. And the storms will come. And when they come, your house will stand because you've built it on the information that comes in the revelation of God's word to us. Foundation. Our faith is tested to prove and prepare us for the service of God. There is no greater testing than that which proves the eternal. None greater. We, look, we do not look at things which are seen, but the things that are unseen. And sometimes that's probably the greatest work that God's doing, that he, we can begin to trust him. We can be ready, tested for battle. We can't see, but we know in whom we believed. Faith knows that trials produce. They produce 
patiently. In other words, they produce patience, only let patience have its perfect work. Trials produce patiently, I've got to hang in there. With the necessity to persevere comes the potential to produce patience. And how we need patience. Look at chapter 5, verse 11 of James. Indeed, we count them blessed and adored. You have heard the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. That the Lord is very gracious and merciful. God's intent to the end is for our good and our benefit and our blessing. Hebrews says, we have human fathers who corrected us as seemed best to them. And we as dads seek to do that. But God, for our, for our benefit, and he knows exactly what he's doing. They produce patiently, but they produce perfectly. Verse 4. A complete work of godly character. That you may be complete. In other words, you are the recipient of that joy and that completeness and that fullness as God takes you through the things he's taking you through. Romans chapter 5, verse 3. And now that we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, character. I've shared this before, but it struck me one time and stuck with me ever since. It doesn't say that tribulation produces character. Tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character. Perseverance character. Now, here's one that I think is very important, part of James in the book. In verses 5 through 11, we know that, that trials produce, they produce humility. How many of you would say amen to that? Humility. In other words, the humility in asking God for his help. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God who gives to all liberally without reproach, and it will be given to him. God wants to help us. We must humble ourselves say, God, I need your help. I need your wisdom, not just the knowledge. I need to know what to do with that knowledge. When and where. Wisdom is more than knowing what to do, but how and when to do it. The wisdom of the world can be foolish when it comes to the trials we're going through. We need the wisdom of God. Often God's wisdom flies in the face of the wisdom of the world, beginning with the gospel. God is more than willing. In fact, God is waiting to give us his wisdom. How? In trials. In this patience. God will not scold you. God will not mock you. Say, man, that was the dumbest request I ever heard in my life. Don't you believe, I won't talk about that in a minute. Don't believe that. Now, let me say this. I've asked a lot of dumb questions in my life of God. But never have I felt God scolding me or mocking me or saying, man, that was dumb. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to understand all your ways. Acknowledge him, and he, he'll think about it. 
<laughs> he will direct. That's our God. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the winds. Wind, for let not that man suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man. What? Unstable in all his ways. The problem in asking is doubting. Is God like that? Is God going to? Doubting leads to hesitating, which leads to second-guessing, which leads to double-minded, which leads to instability. The problem is not so much which step to take, but the problem is take the step. Make the decision. You've got to act on something. You've got to do, make a, direction, a directional decision. And when you do that, God will direct your path. At some point, brothers and sisters, you know it well. At some point, a decision is necessary. And you may not have all the facts. In fact, you probably won't. But you make the decision, and God will direct your path. He will lead you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He may redirect your path. He may correct it. But if you're just standing there hesitating, falling back, double-minded, unstable, you don't know what to do. And let me say this to you honestly through this whole pandemic. I've been at that place several times. I have no idea what to do, how to do it, when to do it, what to say. And that can be so disturbing. But let me say this. God's having no problem with the pandemic. God's having no problem with what's going on in our nation. <laughs> our nation is taking things back into our own hands, forsaking God and ushering him out. No wonder we're seeing what we're seeing. But God's not having a problem with that. God's allowing that for his purposes. So is this all these things allowed by God? Absolutely. Do I like the fact of what's going on? Absolutely not. But there's something that God's doing of a deep work because God is still on the throne. God is still sovereign. God's still allowing these things for his purposes. And I'm praying, Lord, have mercy on us as a nation. Have mercy on us as your people. Help us to turn to you, God, so that you can give us your wisdom. You can direct us. The problem that I'm having is doubting, doubting, doubting. What's, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. And you hear, we hear it all the time. God's still on the throne. He hasn't abdicated that to anybody. Now, much of our learning is by trial and error. <laughs> it's what I call on-the-job training. How many of you are married here? Okay, did you go to pre-marriage counseling, read some books on marriage? That's great. But let me tell you, you learned about marriage on the job. Yeah. <laughs> what about any of you have children? Okay. You might have read all the parenting books you could ever read before you even had children. Then you have children, you realize, oh, okay, that's a nice idea, but now it's on-the-job training. You have kids, and all of a sudden you say, oh, okay, boy, was I hard on that parent. I thought I knew it all. And the problem is that kids grow up and think they know it all. <laughs> you see, it's humility in asking God for help, but it's also the humility in seeing myself as God sees me. Notice verse 9. 
Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So, is the rich, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. The Lord, though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows afar. God looks at the lowly. I think of Mary in that magnificent. He who is great has done, he who is mighty has done great things for Mary just bowing before God. This lowly woman. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What a tragic thing to go through life, never willing to see yourself as God sees you. Plenty of opportunities, but is there an honest willingness to take the tough look? How does God see you? But let me say, you always have to then take that through the lens of the cross. Not how he sees you, but how he loves you. The opportunity for the lowliness in this life to see the glory of God in this life and the life to come. The opportunity for the rich in this life to see the emptiness of all the riches of the world, though you have all of them, and invest their riches for eternal riches that never fade away. Oh, to see ourselves as God sees us. Listen, my brethren, has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? James 2. Faith also resists temptation. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So, Number one, endure and be blessed by God. Endure and be blessed. Blessed is the man, often in the Bible. Psalm 1 begins the first mention of that. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight, the blessing, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose wheat leaf also shall not wither. And whatever he does shall what? Prosper. You see, through trials, resist by enduring temptation, endure and be blessed by him. Secondly, endure and be approved by him. There is the temptation to seek man's approval over God's approval. Proverbs says that's a snare. For not he who, Paul to the Corinthians, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. And let me say to you, it's a lot easier to please God than it is people. It's a lot easier to please God than people. Endure and you'll be blessed. Endure and you'll be crowned. Excuse me, approved, but here's the endure and you will be crowned by him. There are a few crowns we read about in the scriptures. The crown of life here, again in Revelation. The crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy. The crown of glory. As to what they mean in their significance, we are told very little. But I look at a crown as placed on the head in recognition of having received or obtained a special place of honor among others. There will be the judgment seat of Christ. 
There will be those rewards, and I don't know how those work or how that happens. But I know this, one thing, all of them are giving glory to God. So I read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, there's a common temptation to the crowns of this world. Paul puts a perspective on that. Do you not know that those who run in the race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is tempered in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the. I know that what I'm fighting for is worth it. Because he's going to crown. But I discipline my body. And bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached, I myself should become disqualified. Oh, I want to stand before Jesus Christ and know that he saw and he led and he directed. He changed me through the trials and temptations. He forged my character. He forged my faith. And then he does all that and I stand before him and he rewards me for it. Wow. And I don't know how that works. I know it's not going to be, do you see what I got? <laughs> no. In fact, Revelation, wherever the, whenever the living creatures, this is Revelation 4, whenever the living creatures... Give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him, capital H, who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and exist. Whew. Just the glory of being there. Before his throne, because of what Jesus did for us. So resist also being drawn away by temptation. Resist by being drawn away. Resist being drawn away by temptation. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, but each one is drawn away by when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. That's what's happening in temptation. Resist temptation, resist being drawn away by temptation. It's a slow little draw. It's not that those desires in and of themselves are wrong. The desire for pleasure is not wrong. God gave us those senses. Desire for possessions is not wrong. Desire for a position is not wrong. Desire for prosperity is not wrong. The desire for money is not wrong. Desire for sex is not wrong. They become wrong when they are being fulfilled outside the will of God. They become wrong when they become disobedience to the will of God. They become wrong when they become that which controls my life. Contrary to the will of God. When some other God, little g, begins to rule my life and not the big G God. The temptation is not the sin. Know that clearly. The temptation is not the sin. Temptation will lead us to sin if given the go-ahead. Jesus said, pray, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. What's, he, what's Jesus? Is God going to lead me into temptation? No, James is telling. No, God's not tempting us. 
but those temptations are always there. The devil is wanting to tempt us. The world is what he uses to tempt us, and our sinful nature is what's drawn away. So number one, resist your own desire to sin. You have that sinful nature. It's going to be there. Secondly, resist every enticement to sin. Verse 14, each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desires conceived, it brings forth, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full conceived, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brethren. You know what I'm talking about. We've all been drawn away, enticed, and sinned. The problem is this. The temptation takes hold of those desires that were in neutral and entices us to put them, slip them into gear. The problem is we're enticed to engage the engine of our own will contrary to what we know is the will of God. The problem, desire plus enticement equals sin and death. The solution, minus the desire or minus the enticement, And the temptation is neutralized. If the temptation is neutralized, the sin cannot be conceived. See what? So there's a conception that's taking place before the act. Before the sin is birthed, it is conceived. Decision made. These are those times when we we might stumble into sin, but I think more often we strategize into sin. We thought it through. We know. How did I get here? You know how you got there. You know what you did. You know the decisions you made. The unwillingness to repent or the unwillingness to forgive. The unwillingness here, there, and the other. And God wants to lead us in those places, but they are trialsome places. They're difficult places. And so the question, can I honestly say I just don't know how I got here? As a believer, I'm going to face temptations, desires that are outside the will of God. So here's the final one. Resist any questioning of God's goodness. Resist any questioning of God's goodness. Notice what he says. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. Every good gift and every perfect is from above and comes down. Everything that comes down from God is a gift. It's perfect. It's from above. It's good. Everything coming from God. Trials included, he allows. Comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variation or shadow of turning. In other words, he delivers us out of darkness. Of his own will he brought us forth. He delivers us into eternal life. By the word of truth, he delivers us from deception. And delivers us, and and then it says, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, he delivers us for his desires, his will. Second Corinthians, it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Would you say amen? amen. Again, First Peter, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy name, his own special people that you may have proclaimed the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are walking in the light, not darkness. Colossians, he has delivered us from the power of darkness. 
and conveys him the kingdom of his son. Finally, resist by not deceiving yourselves. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Your emotions will deceive you. Notice, so that my beloved, let, a, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of God does not produce the righteousness of God. I want to tell you something. This whole pandemic has made this, this verse very real. All my emotions, all my anger, all things are not going to be helpful when it comes to the righteousness of God. My emotions will deceive me. So be slow to speak, slow to wrath. James has a lot to say about the tongue. We'll get to that. One of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. We need to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Our emotions and attitudes get going, and we need to bring them under the power of the Holy Spirit so they don't get us going where we don't want to go. Your emotions will deceive you. Secondly, your perceptions will deceive you. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and he forgets what kind of man he was. <laughs> My perceptions, I want to usher out the reality and have well, my perception. Your perceptions will deceive you. And there's a lot of that going on today, isn't there? Assumptions and perceptions. Somebody says something, all of a sudden the perception is they're this or they're that without even knowing them. Our perceptions will deceive us. I love this little poem. We'll close in a, mo- in a minute. My face in the mirror isn't wrinkled or drawn. My house isn't dirty, the cobwebs are gone. The garden looks lovely, and so does my lawn. I think I might never put my glasses back on. <laughs> Here we go, finally. But he who looks in the, per- listen, God's revelation, his word will never deceive you. Never. That's why it's so important that we have the lens of God's truth through which we're looking at our lives. We're looking at the world. We're looking at what's going on and saying, I'm going to go God's word way. Notice, he who looks in the perfect law of liberty. God's word is not constraining. It's liberty. You'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And notice, continues in it. Now, there's the trial. There's the testing. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. Notice what he says. This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone of you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue. In other words, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Walking is costly. Walking is the proving ground. So if anyone, it says there, but, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion, I like the word, is useless. It's useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Let me tell you this. 
The need, the opportunity is inexhaustible. We can go out and be participating in life through our faith in God, where he will test it. But the pure and undefiled is just very simple. Visit, or, visit those who are in trouble and keep yourself unspotted from the world. Let's pray. Lord, again, I'm so thankful for this book and just even, even having to restudy and go over these things and think these things through. And I know that's true for my brothers and sisters here and watching. Lord, grant us, I pray, a humble heart. You resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And we want to walk humbly with you, Lord. We want to receive the engrafted word which is able to save our souls. We want to look into the perfect law of liberty and look at how see ourselves as you see us, humble ourselves, ask for your help. Look to you as the one who will, who will lead us in paths of right. Lord, all the things we've talked about, we just lift them up as a prayer to you that we might be having that faith that works, that our, our, the substance of our faith is evident. We love you, Lord. We pray your blessing over this word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we close in song?